Good afternoon and welcome to Mediascope, the programme for and about the public relations, event management and journalism industries. I'm Ellen Gunning from the Global Institute for Public Relations and you're very welcome to the programme. Now on this week's show I'm chatting with Ray Taylor, author of a book with a really interesting title, Mr Ray Would Like a Monkey. Memoirs from the Frontline of Humanitarian Aid, published by Orpen Press, and he's joining me on the line now. Thanks for taking my call, Ray. Yeah, hello, how are you? <laughs> sure, I'm the finest. Come here and let me kick straight into you. You are working as a humanitarian aid worker, or where, but you decided, I suppose that the thing that made you jump into it was a health scare, which turned out not to be a heart attack, but it yeah. actually propelled you into aid work. Tell me how it came about because it had been on your mind for a while. Yes, I've been interested in aid work. I think everybody had some sort of interest after live aid. But I was running a business and I couldn't go overseas and do anything to help overseas. But it was it was there in my mind. that planted the seed. And then when the health scare took place, uh, I thought it was a heart attack. It turned out it wasn't lucky enough. But uh, I had this sort of moment in the hospital when I was in the hospital being checked out and, I was kept there for a week till I figured out what was wrong. I had this moment where I thought, right, I'm after working very hard all my life. I'm uh, in my mid-40s at this stage, and I, if I had the chance, I would do things differently. It was sort of a wake-up call. That's a really interesting one in your mid-40s. You're a bit young to be having that wake-up call, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. That's the whole point, though. It was such, gave me such a fright. I'd actually sit in bed thinking in the hospital and I hadn't realised I was sort of voicing my thoughts. But what I said, if I had my life all over again, I think I'd do things differently. And this nurse was passing by and she said, uh, what do you mean? And I got a bit of a shock then because I hadn't realised I'd verbalised the thoughts. And I explained to her, I said, I've been working very hard. I've been running a business. It's work, work, work. And now here I am, and it looks like I might last much longer. So, uh, you know, obviously I've made a huge mistake. If if I get through this, I'm going to look at things differently. So I did, yeah, yeah. So you you began, like, that's a huge challenge because you're married, you have a young family. And um, What age were your children at this stage, Ray? Uh, let me see now. That would have been uh, 1994. So my daughter was 19 and in college, uh, youngest son was what about sixteen, and sorry, oldest son was about sixteen, and the youngest was about ten, ten or eleven. Yeah. So you, you've still got a young family. There's still there's one in college, which is going to cost you money for the next few years, and two heading in that direction. You're yeah. running a business, and you actually your decision was really very much you wanted to take off and work as an aid worker, but you initially thought that you could juggle the two, which I think all of us think, right? It's it's the basis of a workaholic's thinking that you think, yeah. well, actually I could do just less work on the full-time job and maybe do a couple of months here and there in aid work. But you found that was really difficult to juggle. So you actually decided to move away from your business altogether. Yeah, now that didn't happen overnight, obviously. Uh, you know, I, I kept making inquiries with various aid agencies, but they wanted me for longer time than I could afford to give at that stage. So this dragged on for a number of years. I'm talking maybe three or four years. How can I do this? How can I manage it? But it was it was like a weight on my shoulder. I just couldn't get rid of it. And uh, eventually, when I just, uh, did get a posting, it was like this huge burden had been lifted off. And that was in 1997 when I got a posting to Bosnia which I hate to add, I wasn't 
prepared for at all, sort of mentally, or I wasn't trained properly. But I realised that afterwards. Well, now, te- let me take you back just a second, because you decided to step back from your company. And in the yeah. initial stages, then you thought maybe if you worked on a contract basis for another company that you wouldn't have that responsibility. I presume you had a number of employees, so it was moving away from that being responsible for for making for earning people's living for them in effect and working for somebody else so that you could take time out but you found that kind of tied you in terms of time as much as working for yourself did pretty much it did it gave me a little bit more time but then you see if you sign a contract to run a job for someone else you're committed to that contract you can't walk away so uh, (laughs) I I realised when I'd been doing that for a while this still isn't exactly working, but if I could land the job when the contract finished, it's like trying to do the lot of them. If you land the job when uh, in between contracts, then that would work, but uh, it, it didn't really work. Yeah, if you landed a job in between contracts, uh, you would yeah. have to go out and buy a lotto ticket because you're definitely the luckiest man in the world. Yeah. Yes, but yes. but tell me, so you're this is still bugging you in the, while you're doing this and you're changing your kind of work day, your full time work life, if you like. You're still trying to figure out how do you become an aid worker. I wouldn't have thought it was all that difficult. And I'm a total innocent. I'm a, I have no knowledge of this at all. But I would have thought it's very reasonable if somebody came in and said, I can give you two or three months at a slot. Would that be of any benefit to you? That they would have taken you, but everybody turned you down. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised. Just I was of the opinion that you're of. Uh, you know, someone will take me with all my business experience. Someone yeah. will take me. But they didn't. They didn't want to know me, basically. They and said, what's no. their kind of minimum time then? Well, at that stage, initially they said to me, if you come to us for two years, we'll take it. We, we could use your experience, but you, you, you need time to get involved and get work yourself into a job. Uh, I, I was of the opinion that I know from the building industry, I'd come into a job and I'd be working into it within days. So uh, I, I didn't really get this long-term working into a job angle. But, uh, I yeah, must yeah, admit, they, they I don't either. Why the two-year piece? Because I would think that would confine the aid agencies to young single people, or maybe not so young single people, but people who didn't have uh, young children to look after. You know, but people how, people without yeah, that sorry. level of commitment, two years is a heck of a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I had to turn it down. But this is, an awful lot of aid workers do, do give this sort of commitment. Now, I was lucky in that I found a niche in the emergency field. You know, two years for development work, where it's long-term stuff. Uh, the emergency field, where you're going hell for leather, uh, people work shorter terms uh, than then. But one of the reasons for that is because you're born out. You know, you're going out at hammer and tong. And you actually found APSO. Somebody said to you, if you're looking to do two or three months at a time, it's that, I never actually thought of separating out emergency aid as opposed to development aid, but it's the emergency aid side of the business that you need to be in and you should talk to APSO. How did you open the door with them or how did that go? Uh, Well, again, I was very lucky. Uh, A friend of my wife's who was a nurse said, if you go to APSO, uh, I got a posting from them for three months. So I just rang up Apso and said, right, I'm looking for work. Uh, what do I need to do? Uh, I want to work for you. And they said, right, come in for an interview. I went there for the interview and I was surprised in the interview because they recognized things that I could be useful for that I never thought of. So the interview was uh, a learning process for me. Uh, and then they 
said, right, what did they okay. find as an item of interest, Ray? All right. Well, my, my sport all my life has been motorcycles, motorcycle road racing in particular. Right. And, uh, and uh, one of my jobs there would have been organising the various, say, ambulances, medical crew, radios, people uh, to run a, a roast like the, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Scaries 100, but something like that. And, uh, it's, it's, I'm uh, shocking brain dead when it comes to all sports, so it's nothing personal okay, to the right, Scaries okay. 100. <laughs> right, Scaries 100 is a motorcycle road race that's run on roads that are closed for the weekend, the public traffic. So, uh, but basically I would have been doing a lot of the logistics for that. And it, that also involved using a radio. So they said, well, okay, you can use a radio. What you're doing is basically logistics, which was sort of a uh, surprise to me. And they said, uh, yeah, we think we could make use of you as a logistician. And, uh, That's interesting because even, the, the sorry, I'm thinking Scaries 100, but if you're putting together that whole road race and how it runs and who does what and how do you close off the roads, I presume you're also the person then who has an ability to quick think. So you can, you're actually saying to do it this when something happens. Were you also the sort of crisis manager on the job or were you, had you stepped back? I'm just, I'm going off and down a little rabbit hole here now, but I'm curious. No, no, I, I'd be at the front there, at the front line on the uh, incidents as they call them. Anything happened, I, I'd be dealing with that. So your big benefit then to an age agency would also be the fact that you were used to reacting quickly when something happened. I mean, yes. there's an awful lot of people who can't do that with the best will in the world. OK, so they went through your, your interview and said, oh, you're much more interesting than we thought you were from a from a, an aid agency point of view. A logistician. OK, I can understand how you never saw yourself like that before. What does a logistician do in emergency aid? Pardon my ignorance. Well, uh, a logistician is responsible for getting what's required to the right place at the right time for the right price. And uh, coordinating, sort of say, if you're sending in uh, supplies by plane, you have to arrange booking the flights. You have to, you have to purchase the goods first. But before you can purchase the goods, you have to know what they want. So uh, you're you're taking it from the time someone says, right, we need X, Y, and Z. They detail what they want to send in a requisition. You get priced for that uh, if it's below a certain level, and uh, then you purchase it. You put it in the stores. You get it sent to the right place. And uh, to the people, the nutritionists and nurses on the ground. So you're basically the engine that makes keeps the whole thing running. So they didn't actually want your skills as a builder at all. It was your logistician no. skills that were of benefit to them. Yeah, which was a <laughs> Very interesting. So tell me, how did you, you, you did your first posting in Bosnia, I know. Um, yeah. But tell me about, sorry, before we do that, tell me about you two's role in all of this. Because the great god Bono was partly responsible for convincing you that you really should make the jump and do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had the idea uh, after Live Aid, but that was it. And I, it was a wish, on a wish list. What pushed me was uh, the music from uh, U2 and Pavarotti. Uh, I, I explain in the book that we'd moved into an old house, which I just renovated, sitting down on Christmas Day with some friends, and in the background, the uh, top of the pops, I think it was on. And uh, suddenly the music from uh, Miss Sarajevo came on. And I just, everything around me just seemed to fade into the background. And I watched the, I don't know if you've ever seen the video, that's the original video with Miss Sarajevo. But uh, it, it shows sort of people rushing through the streets in, in Sarajevo, keeping low so they're not shot, bomb explosions. And I thought, 
God, that's terrible. You know, they, those people sort of could do with some help. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and this is what aid workers do, to bring help. And it was, it was just a trigger. I thought, right, that's, that's it. That's what I want to do. So it's all you two's fault. <laughs> I'm sure they'd be delighted to take credit for that one now I have to tell you so tell me your first posting is off to Bosnia does APSO actually I presume they give you a lot of training before they send you away they didn't uh, a minimum amount of training uh, by the way I don't think APSO as APSO exists anymore so I won't be insulting anybody okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean absorbed into the Department of Foreign Aid no excuse me I got a, a bit of training just about basically look out for the landmines. Don't pick up any unexploded ordnance. Uh, don't get into uh, damaged military vehicles because they could be booby trapped. Uh, you know this sort of stuff. Don't go anywhere you're not supposed to be going because you don't know if it's booby trapped. And one of the uh, bits of advice I was given, uh, which really rang a bell in my head, they said if you go into a house that's strange for some reason and there's a toilet there and you flush the toilet. There could be a hand grenade hanging by a wire from the mechanism inside the system, which is sort of blown to bits. So this sort of focused my mind. I said, oh, I, 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 I don't know how to cope with this stuff at all. But they're so actually it, training you to go into war zones. Uh, really, really to sort of heighten your awareness. Let me take a very quick commercial break here and I'll come back to you right after this. You're listening to The Mediascope Show with Ellen Gunning on 103.2 Dublin City FM. Welcome back. I'm chatting with Ray Taylor, the author of Mr. Ray Would Like a Monkey. Um, And we've been talking about training to go into war zones. I wouldn't have thought of flushing a toilet um, that it might have a hand grenade. I certainly wouldn't have thought about getting into a damaged vehicle. Um, because it, it, it might be filled with explosives or whatever. So they're they're basically telling you to have this really heightened awareness, kind of like somebody coming from the country into a massive big city and you say, here's what you need to watch out for because you stand out as being a newbie. They send you to Bosnia. Tell me about your experience of arriving in Bosnia um, because that was a, a big shock in it. So that was shock number one. Yeah, well, that's before I even arrived in Bosnia, I got a bit of a shock because uh, I was supposed to fly from Vienna to into Sarajevo, but the flight was delayed. And for security reasons, flights only landed in Sarajevo, I think, in a two or a three hour window during the day. So they diverted the plane to uh, split in Croatia, which was also under a form of military control. And then they had a bus, a bus brought us from split to Sarajevo in the Bad weather, seven-hour journey. Uh, it didn't seem too bad in Croatia when we were the bus left, but as we approached Bosnia, the, the whole situation deteriorated. There was houses blown to bits and roofs missing off buildings, and uh, we were all chatting away in the bus, and we were all affected by it because as we when we crossed the border into Bosnia, all the chat died out. People got very very quiet. And I, I looked around and I thought, my God, this is like something to see in a war film. But I'm here. Am I really here? And uh, I could see people, and a, a few of the people sort of were getting upset at what they saw. So eventually, anyway, I got into Sarajevo. Uh, the people who were supposed to meet me had long gone to their, where they were staying because their communications had broken down. There's no way of knowing it was coming. It turned out afterwards they'd been informed the bus was coming the next day. So they went away quite happily. But uh, that often happens. You know, communication gets screwed up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
So I ended up on Saturday April, so I was looking around, thinking, what the hell am I going to do now? <laughs> and uh, the Holiday Inn Hotel was nearby, so I headed for it. And uh, I, I managed to get a room for the night in the Holiday Inn, which was would have been sort of almost familiar to me because I'd been on the news for so so much uh, people reporting from Sarajevo. Actually, you just saying that now that you were familiar with the news, when you were given your training, were you given a deep briefing on what the situation was in Bosnia and Croatia and what the war was actually all about and who was fighting who? Uh, Try to explain what the war was all about is a difficult thing to do. Oh, I'm aware of that, but I'm thinking if you have a desire to be an aid worker and you're not familiar with the area that you're going into, even if you are familiar with it, but particularly if you're not, is part of your training a cultural and a geographic immersion into the historical background of this war zone that you're landing into? Does somebody Uh, say broadly, here's the 101 of what's happening there? Very broadly. Afterwards, I learned learned to do a lot more research myself. Uh, And in fairness, uh, I I was like a lamb to the slaughter going to Bosnia, to be quite honest. I was just naive. It it comes across in your book, actually, that you were very willing and quite lost um, that you you didn't have the kind of structures or infrastructure around you that you would have had after you'd done a couple of these trips. I think really what I wanted to follow with you was you arrived in Bosnia. That silence when you, you crossed the the border and everybody begins to feel like, because we're all familiar with seeing the images on television and we are affected by them. But the level of how you're affected by them is multiplied by, I don't know, 10 or 50 or something when you're actually there and you're seeing it for yourself. Did you, you said at one stage, and I I actually kind of understood it, that you enjoyed the excitement of all of the danger, that you almost became a danger junkie. I'm putting words in your mouth now. But that there was something about the speed you were moving at, the job you had to do, that you got totally wrapped up in the excitement of it. Anybody who's, well, not anybody, that's too generalisation. Most people who have worked in war zones, they, they if, I, if I'm honest about it, I think an awful lot of us get addicted to it. Uh, because there is, a, there's a buzz. There's no doubt about it. There's a buzz. Uh, and, you know, as things, it moves at a fantastic pace, uh, everything that's going on. But all the time, in the back of your mind, you have to be aware, you know, I better be careful what I do here. You know, uh, like if, if I might, might just give you an example, if I can move away from Bosnia for just for a second. Sure, yeah. In, 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 uh, in Sierra Leone, which was actually extremely dangerous, on my first weekend there, I woke up early. I'd arrived, I think, on a Wednesday or Thursday, I can't remember. But on my first weekend there, it was a beautiful morning. White beaches, just whatever it was, 100 yards away. And I thought, oh, God, this is a great place. Calm trees, got my bathing togs on, headed down the road, across the road to go for a swim. Mm-hmm. Uh, before before I got to the beach, before I got to the sea, I was only halfway across the stretch of beach, when there were shouts like, stop, 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 you know, and I, I looked around and there was a number of soldiers had guns up pointed at me and uh, I thought, you know, what the heck's going on here? I'm yeah. only going for a swim. And, and they said, stop, stop. And, and I said, right. And looking back on it, I can laugh because what I said to them was, don't shoot me, I'm Irish. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's your get out of jail card everywhere you go. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yes. It doesn't seem to work. It's funny enough. <laughs> so I think that took some of the 
tension out of it. And, and I said, well, like, what's the problem? And they said, you're on the beach. I said, I know I'm on the beach, but how is that a problem? And, and they said, oh, you're not allowed on the beach. It's, it's, um, the beach is a no-go area. The rebels attacked from the sea before. So we're patrolling the beach. And if we see any on, anyone on the beach, we shoot them. <laughs> so I thought, oh, excuse me. Uh, well, you understand, I just arrived. And they laughed then. You know, they thought it was funny that this Irish man was wandering around the no-go area risking getting shot so that he could have a swim. But, uh, <laughs> I'd love to know how many different variations of what an Egypt they called you afterwards. <laughs> but you obviously diffused it for them. Come here, before I deal with the humour, I just want to come back a minute to that getting addicted on the whole danger of the thing. Yes. Do, do you find that you... Um, I don't know if it's a fair question or not, so don't answer if you don't want to, but did you find that you got so immersed in what you were doing that you almost forgot Ireland, wife, family, kids, that what you were doing was it consumed you 24 hours a day? Well, no, I wouldn't say it com- I completely forgot them. What I would say is you have to compartmentalise what you're doing. Okay. And if I'm up to my eyes in something, I'm not going to be distracted by anything else going on. So I'm dealing with sort of what's immediately in front of me. Uh, keeping in mind all the time the security angle and uh, but then every so often you just a wave would come over you um, homesickness missing the family you, you can't really uh, predict when it's going to happen like excuse me how did it happen one day in Sierra Leone again or it's a sudden wave of the blues came over me and I thought oh god I wish I was sitting down with my family for dinner tonight so you do miss them. And out of a clear blue open. sky, yeah. Yeah, out of a clear blue sky. Well, actually, something might have prompted. A woman had uh, given birth to a baby uh, in this camp where they were all, they'd all fled into Freetown in Sierra Leone uh, because they'd been driven there by, they'd flicked, uh, after fleeing from the rebels where there was a lot of attacks and people killed and mutilated. And we built these camps for them to stay in, temporary shelter, we called it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was there working this particular Saturday and this woman came out and she said, this is my baby. It was born last night. And uh, I said, she's a little girl and she was showing me the child who was only a few hours old. Uh-huh. And I said, sorry, I, I said to her, have you given her a name? And she said, no. And uh, I said, would, would you call her Elizabeth? And she says, oh, why? I said, that's the name of my wife. And then I suddenly felt terrible homesick. Okay, and that, that was what caused it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, but tell me about, um, because I'm fascinated by this sort of, I think what I took from your book most was the, the mental effect of, of doing good, right? Of, of saying, I, I really want to go out there and I want to do good. You go out, you're working under this incredible pressure. You miss the family, you get home, and then you talk about what's known as a reverse culture shock that almost sounded to me like survivor syndrome. You know, you get back and suddenly the world has changed and the things that were important before you left are absolutely unimportant now that you're back. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, eventually I realised that uh, that this is part of uh, coping with coming home. Initially, when it happens to you, you wonder what the heck's gone wrong with you. You know, you're feeling depressed. You should be happy when you're home. You're, well, depressed not in a clinical way. You're feeling down. You feel out of it, you miss, to a certain extent, you miss the camaraderie, you miss the excitement, you feel guilty because you've left these people behind. There's a whole range of emotions you go through. 
and, and uh, you go into the shops and everything, the shops are full of stuff and you come from a place maybe where you're living in a tent and nobody has anything. Uh, and it, it's just, it's the shock of moving from one culture into another. Now, most people uh, are briefed and they say, if you go out to a foreign country, you could suffer culture shock. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that. I, I, I just love going to different places and I think we get suffered the culture shock. But uh, what most people will experience as well coming back is what you call, that's what they call that reverse culture shock. Your brain needs time to adjust. My my wife came out with a statement one day when I'd come back from somewhere else, therefore, and, and uh, she said, uh, well, your body is back, your brain will join you soon. You know, oh, and clever woman, yeah. Yeah, she didn't mean it the bad sort of way. She was actually trying to... No, no, she, she was trying to figure out, she knew, she understood at that stage that this was yeah. what happened. It took a while for you to actually settle back into being at home. Do you, do you ever keep in touch with the people? So you, you've been, you move on from Bosnia to Kenya to Darfur to Sierra Leone. Do you keep in touch with the aid workers or the people on the ground? Or do you, do you wonder about whatever happened to them afterwards? Or do you have to close that chapter and move on? Well, you close it as much as you can. The problem is you can't completely close it. It'd be unnatural. Mm. Uh, but aid workers tend, uh, now I'm retired now, but aid workers when I was active, uh, tend to meet up with other aid workers because if, if I came home from a posting, uh, one of the things I'd do is I'd go into town and into Dublin and I'd meet up with other people who've worked overseas. I might have worked with them in a particular place. I mightn't have, but I just know them through the aid organisation. Uh, and so sort of like attracts like, I suppose, uh, because they understand what you're going through. Whereas other people, you, you can't expect them to understand what you're going through when you come back and that's yeah. actually fair enough. So it keeps that camaraderie. And the people that you actually helped or the woman who called her daughter Elizabeth, no contact ever afterwards? No. 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 The only person I've ever I haven't contacted, I've looked up on the internet. There's a story in the book called uh, about Lucy. Uh, in fact, she's on the front cover of the book, Little Girl That had her arm taken off by a high-velocity bullet. It's a beautiful picture, and I'm going to let people find out about Lucy by reading the book, which is called Mr. Ray Would Like a Monkey. Ray Taylor, thank you so much for joining me today. I thoroughly enjoyed that chat. Thank you. Well, now, that's all I have for you for this week. That flew. What an interesting insight. If you have information you'd like to share with us, send me an email to mediascope at dublincityfm.ie. And don't forget, you can hear podcasts of this and previous Mediascope programmes on www.globalinstituteforpr.com. I'm Ellen Gunning. Sound this week was by Fergal Daly. My thanks to Ray Taylor and thanks to you for being with me today. I look forward to the pleasure of your company at the same time next week. So until then... Goodbye.